And so we find ourselves in chapter 7, which is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which I, I would make the case, the Sermon on the Mount being the first sermon in Matthew, being the longest extrapolation, is in fact the core, the essence of what it means to be a disciple. That's foundational to everything that it means to be a disciple. Frank and Arlene, you moved. You moved. You usually here. You moved over here. What, what's up? The seats were taken. Yeah. Oh, so you, you just like what? Twenty years, and you just like right? Boom. I mean, I, <laughs> how do you do that? Do you expect me to preach? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just stay right there. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just messing with you. Um, <clears throat> oh my. So, you, 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 right in the middle of this sermon. We have this text, and so we want to pay attention to this text as it relates to this sermon. So if you would, re- read with me beginning. Um, and, and by the way, our sermon title today is Don't Judge, Be... And I'll let you think about that a moment. Um, <clears throat> verse 1, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How how can you say to your brother or your sister, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank or a log, you could read that either way, a beam, (laughs) big, in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give... Dogs, what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Uh, will your heavenly, uh, will, will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, we ask that You would um, open our hearts and minds to hear Your Word, and indeed that we would. Uh, be softened in our hearts by your spirit and that these words would be etched in our souls and they would transform how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Most surveys that rank favorite Bible verses or most popular Bible verses are based on certain Bible apps. So whether it's version or Bible Gateway, it's based on what are the most common searches or most looked up verses. And, and so they, they come up with some great lists. John 3.16, Psalm 23, uh, Jeremiah 29.11. You know, I know the plans I have for you. You probably may not know where it is, but you, you've heard the verse, so you search for it. And uh, another, of course, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, so we, we know those verses, but the, the truth is that only measures popular verses amongst Christians because the last time I checked, most unbelievers aren't like filling their phone with Bible apps. So what is the most popular verse to unbelievers? What's the most well-known to unbelievers? Greg Laurie, who's an uh, evangelical pastor in California, uh, he suggested in an article that Matthew 7-1 is the most well-known verse in the unbelieving world around us. Most of them know it like this. Don't judge lest you be judged. 
Now, most of them couldn't tell you where it is. There's no question about that or anything about what's around it. But they could tell you that verse, and they'll frequently quote it to you, especially if you bring up anything they're doing that they shouldn't be. That's usually the context, right? I think he's right, certainly close, uh, one of the most popular. But despite its popularity, Matthew 7, 1 and the surrounding verses are not easy to understand. I mean, on first blush, it's pretty easy to understand, but really it's not. The typical approach to verses 1 through 6 in our text, for me, if I'm honest with you, at best is confusing. Just based on how it's typically approached. Because it ends up saying something like this, at least how most people are taking the verse and most commentaries go with it. It says something like this, Don't judge, lest you be judged. Because the way you judge is how you will be judged. And then in verse 6, after some extrapolation, uh, be careful to judge people as dogs and pigs so that you don't accidentally cast holy pearls before them or something to that effect. Now, of course, it doesn't say to judge them as dogs and pigs. It simply says not to give what is holy to dogs and not to give pearls to pigs. But in order to know who you're not to give it to, you have to evaluate them and determine if they are dogs or pigs. I don't know about you, but I find that a little bit confusing. Which is it? Don't judge them or judge them so that you know whether or not to cast these things before them. If verses 1 and 2 do not judge with the measure you use, if they are talking about judgment generally, and verse 6 is a caution not to overdo it, hey, don't judge, but don't go too far with that. The caution fails to give me any practical advice or any way to understand how to apply it. Well, make sure you don't overdo it. Don't give to dogs and pigs what is holy. Great. How do I know who they are? Especially can't judge them to determine that. So what what do we do? I think D.A. Carson identifies where the problem lies. He suggests that most people try to understand chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, our text today, with no connection to what precedes and consider these verses to have little internal cohesion. Little internal cohesion. Now, I've learned over the years that when I'm reading the Bible and the material in front of me seems to be disorganized and not very well thought out, that the problem is not with the person who penned it. The problem is with moi. Okay, that I am the one who doesn't understand what's going on, not that they didn't know what they were doing. We have to take this text for what it is. Now, to be fair... Many treat the text as a disconnected compilation of detached sayings for a reason. They do so because to us, there is no obvious connection with what comes before it. And frankly, all the sermons we've heard and all the commentaries we look in universally treat them that way. Without exception. So you're kind of like, well, how else would I take them? Nobody else seems to take them any other way, so we... Just keep taking them that way. But just as last week's text, if you were here last week, that text, don't worry, you know, about food or drink or clothing. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow have enough um, uh, worries of its own or or evils of its own. Just as that text is a go-to for a sermon on why we should not worry, this week's text is a go-to for a sermon on do not judge. Hey, we're not supposed to judge. Let's go to this text. I want to talk about judging. I'm going to this text. And when we do that, we just kind of jump off into the middle of a diving, you know, something pull off a diving board. We, we see a word in the text and we jump into it. We don't pay any attention to what leads up to it or what comes after it, or how the, the verses are connected to each other inside. 
And despite the popularity of our text, not many grapple with how, to, uh, uh, how it fits into the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Or if they do, they do so only superficially. So to understand the Sermon on the Mount, let me, let me just present this as a thought. To understand the Sermon on the Mount most fully, we have to take it as it is presented, as one sermon. I know that's a bit of a novel concept, particularly in our day and age when, you know, a lot of people would like to tell you that, well, you know, Matthew was just grabbing these extrapolated sayings of Jesus and he wanted to put them somewhere, so he just shoved them in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why they keep interpreting it as if that's what took place. Well, I don't know what Matthew did or did not do. All I know is that God inspired Matthew to give us the Sermon on the Mount as it is connected in this book, and that's all I have to work with. So I'm going to work with it as it's given to me by God, And when I do, I think it will bear fruit. I think it will bring out meaning. And that's what we have to do as we approach the Scripture. We we can't go with an imaginary text that exists somewhere else. We have to go with the text that is in front of us. And the text that is in front of us is one sermon. And we have to take it that way. Context makes all the difference. We saw last week in chapter 6, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, that Jesus tells us, don't worry, be generous. Because worry prevents people from being generous. Worry about what they're going to eat keeps them from being generous. So that was what we saw there. It wasn't don't worry so that you can have a worry-free life. That's how it's often preached. But that's not what the point that Jesus was making. It's don't worry, be generous. The te- that text addressed what could prevent the average person in Jesus' audience, most of them were poor, from being generous. They would have fear about what they're going to eat tomorrow. Now, the rich wouldn't have that same fear, but the poor would have fear. So how am I supposed to be generous? Because what am I going to do tomorrow, the next day, the week after that? So Jesus addressed their fears. God will take care of you. Be generous one to the other. That's last week's message. I'm not going to re-preach it. So here we are at this week's message. In this week's text, Jesus tells us, don't judge, be, what do you think might go there? Generous. Yes, I am redundant. I keep repeating myself. I do. It's, it's age. Um, <clears throat> no, actually, it's just because that's what the text is about. Don't judge. Be generous. Because why? Because judging prevents people from being generous. This message would now address both the poor who had begun to climb the ladder... And the not many noble in the church. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians, there are not many noble. But there were a handful, there were a couple that had wealth. And and so in Jesus' audience, we know from other verses in the Gospels, there there were people that financially supported the ministry. So, So in Jesus' audience, those people existed. So he's saying... To the wealthier ones, as well as, you know, in the poor, we, there's still ratings amongst the poor. I mean, uh, one of the things that Donna and I figured out when we went to a third world country is, you know, we look at them and go, everybody's poor. But then you start figuring out, no, they have tiers of poverty. Okay, it's whole different levels of, of poor that are there. And the same would have been true in Jesus' day. There are whole different levels. And some of them had begun to work their way to the top of the ladder. They might just get themselves out of it. And and they're the, you know, self-made man. I mean, we've, we've done this. We've, we've, we've taken it on. So... Jesus is saying to them, don't let your judgment of those who aren't in your position, those that have greater needs than you, don't let that keep you from being generous. I'm going to make my case as we go through the text today, so bear with me. But we're going to explore it under three headings. Life in the Father's house, don't judge, be generous. Life in the Father's house, family priorities. And life in the Father's house, sibling relationships. Um, And overall, we see this. Don't let your judgment 
of the needy, keep you from being generous, or God's judgment of you will not be generous. That's kind of the driving point of our text. Don't let your judgment of the needy, put in parentheses, keep you from being generous, or God's judgment of you will not be generous. Let's begin under that first heading, life in the Father's house. Don't judge, be generous. Let's read verse 1 and 2 again, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Martin Franzman, a a scholar from the middle of the last century, describing the purpose of these verses, verses 1 through 12, and these verses 1 through 6 in particular, he says this. He says, the disciple derives his existence from God the giver. And has become the instrument and vehicle of divine giving. If he assumes the role of God the judge, he forfeits God the giver and must face the judge. I think he got right to the heart of what this text is about. The disciple derives his existence from God the giver and has become the instrument and vehicle of divine giving. If he assumes the role of God the judge, he forfeits God the giver and must face the judge. Listen, we live as sons of our Father in heaven who gives freely and generously, and so too we give freely and generously because we are to be like Him. This gets to the core of what it means to be made in the image of God. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. And you get down to verse 26. And God, on on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God made man, Adam, in his image and after his likeness, male and female. He created them. God made human beings, male and female, in his image and his likeness. And he said, now subdue the earth. Take charge over everything in the earth. Why? Because God had just... The whole first chapter was about God subduing the chaos and making order and through that order providing a garden by which He would now feed human beings. So when He makes us in His image, He said, now you do likewise. You take chaos in this world and you make order out of it and you subdue it and you bring it to where it's fruitful and multiplying and you feed others just like I fed you. His generosity in creation should now define our lives. This is the essence of what it means to be in the image of God. Those who insert themselves into the role of God the judge, allowing that to unseat or to displace the role of God the giver will find themselves in a dangerous place on the day of judgment. Now knowing human tendency, and believe me, Jesus knows human tendency. Knowing human tendency, Jesus I think is saying something like this when he, when he, when he says, do not judge lest you be judged, etc. I, th- I think he's saying something like this. He's saying, hey, crowd, just like your forefathers, those who have a surplus among you, those who have more than what you need today, you are prone to say, and then he, he, he might be quoting from Deuteronomy, this thing that the Israelites are warned to never say, but they did, warned to never say, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. In other words, don't ever say I'm a self-made man. Because that's impossible. You don't even wake up apart from God. 
You don't even wake up apart from God. You don't have breath apart from God. And I think Jesus may have. I'm just trying to imagine what would have gone through his mind after thinking, saying that to them. Hey, and, and, and don't think within yourself. Surely, if this person sitting in front of me uh, with their need does not have enough, it is their own fault. After all, I have what I have because my power and my hands brought it. So if they don't have what they need, well, let's face it. It's because their hands have not done what their hands needed to do. Don't judge lest you be judged. They've been lazy or wasted their goods or failed to budget wisely. You know, I found that when my income went up, budgeting was a lot easier than it was before. I don't know, it's just kind of crazy. Wow, this works a lot better. So good at budgeting. Yeah, I bet you are. (laughs) It's a whole lot easier. It would be poor stewardship for me to take what has been given to me because of my faithfulness, we tell ourselves. I mean, this is, I mean, just imagine, we, we start to turn wickedness into righteousness in our thinking. How, how evil would it be of me to take what I've been given because of my faithfulness? Of course, it was given to you because of God's grace. But, you know, to, he was faithful be given more, and that's what I've got. Because of my faithfulness. And, and it would be wrong for me to now give it to somebody who's been unfaithful. They don't have enough because they obviously have been unfaithful. Because obviously if the reason I have what I have is because I've been faithful. You see how the logic leads to stinginess and justification of wickedness and greed? Logic like this keeps the hungry hungry. Logic like this keeps the hungry hungry. And if you doubt that this is human tendency, I think you should realize that it is virtually the same logic. It's essentially the same logic, a little variation. That Christians, not all Christians, because many Christians were, were trying to abolish slavery, but there were many Christians who justified the entire system of slavery in this country by using logic just like this. It is human tendency to think this way. It's interesting. The authors of the book, there's a book out, it's on helping the poor. It's called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. Good book. But they discovered that their book had an unintended effect. They didn't intend this to happen, but it happened nonetheless. They found that some churches and Christian organizations and presumably individuals use these principles that they laid out in their book as disqualifiers for giving to people rather than as guidelines for how to do so effectively. And so the result was, sadly in their minds, less giving. They never intended their book to produce less generosity, but it did because it gave people reasons to justify not giving. At least because they took it that way. Why? Because of human nature. They, they found it necessary, these authors found it necessary to come back and clarify and restate that their book was intended to guide giving, not decrease it. To guide giving, not decrease it. They experienced, I think, the problem that Jesus is identifying in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. In chapter 6, Jesus has already said that if we do not forgive others their debts, we will not be forgiven our own. I offer to you today that these verses in chapter 7 
are built on that. And they are adding this point, that if we let our judgment of others keep us from being generous, God will allow his judgment of us to overcome his own generosity toward us. You say, that's hard. Yes, I know, but it is seemingly what Jesus said, so I'm just going to go with it. Now, a more wooden but very literal translation of verse 2 in our text would read this way. For, For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you measure, you will be measured. What size scoop? Let's just kind of put it in simple terms. What size scoop do you want God to use when distributing grace to you on Judgment Day? Any, any idea? What, what size scoop would you like? I don't know about you, but I'm thinking I need a really big scoop of God's distribution of grace. I mean, frankly, I want the biggest scoop available. I, I mean, you know, forget scoops. Why don't he just take a wheelbarrow and put a handle on the end? He's big enough. He can use that. And just scoop me out as much grace as possible because I'm going to need it. What size scoop do you want God to use with you when distributing grace to you on Judgment Day? Then, the point of verse 2, then use that size scoop when distributing graciously to others. If you use a small scoop, then God will use a small scoop when distributing grace to use. To you. So use a generous scoop. So, so let, let's, just, let's be clear. We've got different size scoops. We might go in. When it, when it comes to, I need to, I need to help others. Hmm, I've got these different scoops. You know, this one is really nice. I, 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 I want to do it right. And this one, it's polished, it's nice. I want to be, I just want to make sure I'm, 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 I'm doing everything right and I'm, I'm not giving frivolously. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shine it all up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give with this scoop because it's so pretty. Okay, judgment day comes. Guess what? I want that. I want to do it right with you. So I'm going to get this little pretty scoop out and give you some grace. God says on Judgment Day, but not a lot. I wouldn't want to be frivolous with my grace. I don't know about you. That day's not going well. It's not a good day. No, I want. I want a big one. Like I said, I want a wheel. I forget this. I want a wheelbarrow. But you know, the other thing we do, you might notice that you know we want we want this one. We want the big right. But then you know, so wait a minute. There's this little one over here. That's a little. What's that? That's a tablespoon. So, you know, maybe I'll use this end and God will use this end. Well, it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it's real simple. With the measure you use, God will measure to you. Frederick Del Bruner, in his excellent commentary, The Christ Book, says uh, the, the following here. He says, this language of measuring and being measured urges disciples toward generosity. This language of measuring and being measured urges disciples toward generosity. I think he's right, and I think that means that these, this text is connected to the preceding text about generosity. Far too often, we think it is our job as believers to distribute God's judgment when it is in fact our job to distribute God's kindness. Judging the needy will prevent generosity. Judging the needy will prevent generosity. That leads us to removing beams and specks in God's household. Look with me at verse 3 again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, the log, the beam in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the while, all the time, there's a plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This little parable can indeed be applied to many areas. And it, my favorite is to apply it to relationships. It, it applies to relationships. It applies to marriage. I mean, you talk about a, 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 an excellent parable to apply in marriage. Okay, you, you see a problem your, your spouse is doing. Well, then first take this beam out of your eye and then work on the speck in their, your, their eye. I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier to, to have that conversation when you start out with what you've been doing wrong. A lot more open to that conversation. It's a great parable applied broadly, but I want you to notice how well it applies in the specific context of of generosity versus judgment that prevents us from being generous. It might be something like this. Why do you look at the mishandling of time and money in your sibling's eye? That's your brother or your sister, your sibling. Why do you look at the, the, the mishandling of time and money, the poor budgeting in your brother or sister's eye, but pay no attention to the log of greed in your own eye? Hypocrite! Which, again, at that time meant wicked person. Not just double standard, but wicked person. Hypocrite! First take the log of greed out of your own eye and be generous. And then you will see clearly to help them learn how to budget and stop wasting time and money and to stop being slothful, etc., etc., etc. Hey, how much better will our counsel be received by people after we've been generous in helping them? And even if it wasn't more effective, listen, we're called to be like our Father in generosity. This is about our judgment day more than it is anything else. What scoop do you want used with you? And... And I don't think I'm stretching it to say that greed is the bigger sin here because Jesus frequently highlights, I mean frequently talks about how big a problem greed and stinginess is. It's watch out for the the leaven of the Pharisees. What was it? It was greed. It was greed. That's the leaven. So, So this... This is a big sin in Jesus' mind. Now, I understand that, you know, there are places, the book of Proverbs is certainly top of the list, that talk about the problem of slothfulness and wastefulness and, and all those things. But, you know, what's interesting to me is Jesus, as best I know, and I haven't, you know, done a thorough search, but I am not aware of anywhere where Jesus addressed that sin, but he repeatedly addressed this other sin. So I think the log and the speck of sawdust fits in this discussion. And that leads us to verse 6, which talks about holy margaritas. You're saying, what? I didn't see that. Well, just pay attention. I'll show you where it talks about holy margaritas right here in verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is sacred or what is holy. Same word. Do not throw your pearls. Now, you know, one of the advantages of of Peter going to school for for three years and and spending a lot of time learning over the many years uh, the, the Greek languages, when we're in our staff meeting this week, just going through the text, he, he notices that, that it says don't cast your margaritas before the pigs. Because the word for pearls in Greek is margaritas. And, and, and he says, so, you know, you have that. So that, that's why you learn the original languages, so that you can see things like that. No. But, but of course, you think, what, what in the world? Why they, well, because that's where we got the name Margaret from pearl, margaritas. And, of course, then they named a drink after Margaret in some Latin American country. And so it's margaritas. And uh, so no connection between the two. But 
Don't cast your pearls before swine or to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear, tear you to pieces. Now, in the context that I'm proposing that we should take these verses, well, this verse suddenly makes perfect sense and has very practical application. In other words, it might say, read something like this. In your generosity, I am not saying that you need to support the wicked. I am not suggesting that you enable drug addicts or those who reject the counsel of the church or those who refuse to work or every panhandler that you run across asking for money. That is not the generosity that I'm speaking about because they will turn and rend you. You start supporting that way, it'll come back to haunt you. No, no, no. In your generosity, you're called to provide for your siblings in the father's household. This phrase, what is sacred or what is holy, it might read. Most likely, according to some scholars, picks up on uh, the food which was offered in the Old Testament at at, at the altar. And it was not to be given. It says, this is holy, so don't let anyone else eat it except the priest. But of course, in the New Testament, we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So everyone is holy in this kingdom. So again, don't take what is holy and give it to those who are outside the household of God. It's about the household of God, the community of God, and, 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 and the, the importance and significance of providing care within the household of God, the people of God, that the poor among us need to have their needs met. Now, because we have a, a church world today that is so divided between uh, rich and poor that you go to churches that are economic, I'm saying most people do, economically more like you, where you're comfortable, because that's how we do it in America. We don't want to be where we're uncomfortable. Then we have to think even outside our own particular local church, but start thinking about our brothers and sisters that are serving in communities that are less fortunate than ours and, 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 and realizing that we have an obligation and a responsibility to help care for them as well. So if... Verse 6 is referring to what is holy is that bread that would be given only to the holy. It supports the understanding of the whole section, again, as I am proposing it. And that leads to our second point. Next two points, don't worry, they're much shorter. Um, Verses 7 through 11. Life in the Father's house, family, priorities. Read with me beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Asking Seeking and knocking certainly speak about prayer, yes, but they really represent a lifestyle focused on doing God's will in the earth. They are about a lifestyle focused on doing God's will in the earth. Yes, they speak about prayer, but not exclusively so. As one scholar puts it, it is language that describes a lifestyle of focusing on and doing God's purposes. A lifestyle of focusing on and doing God's purposes. Of course, that lifestyle begins with prayer. Last week, in verses, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, 
Jesus, he first gives the disciples reason they don't need to be worried. Don't worry, be generous. But then notice before he closes, he comes back and says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice, and all these things will be added to you. He, he refocuses their attention on what the key goal is. The key goal is God's justice. This week, he turns to the, the others in the crowd and says, Okay, and you, you're, you're going to be tempted to judge and not be generous. And he's addressed that, but now he turns and refocuses them on what the priorities are. Ask, seek, knock. The priority is God's kingdom. You see, when we read these words, it should filter back into everything we've been hearing in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us what to ask for. It's not just ask randomly and you'll... Receive. Ask and you shall receive. That's how this text is often preached. Just whatever you just ask, you'll get it. That doesn't fit. He's already told us what we need to ask for. In fact, back in chapter 6, he says, The Father knows what you need before you ask, therefore pray this way. Well, wait a minute. If he knows what I need before I ask, why do I need to pray anyway? Well, because he wants you to ask for the right things. And so he tells us what we should be asking for in chapter 6, verse 9 and following, as he gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. The first three requests are fundamentally about God's transforming kingdom in the world. Father, your name must be hallowed, so may it be. Father, your kingdom must come. Your justice, your peace must come, so make it so. Your will, not ours, must be done in order for your name to be hallowed. So work in us so that it is. And then... When we read in chapter 6, verse 33, seek and you'll, uh, I'm sorry, when we read seek and you'll find here in chapter 7, we should hear echoes from 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. And we should hear echoes of your kingdom come. That prayer. So these verses here in chapter 7 are, are pulling back themes that are all about doing God's will in the earth. And when we read, ask and it will be given to you, we should hear echoes of the entire Lord's Prayer, including give us this day our daily bread. And I want to remind you once again, and I know I begin to sound like I'm repeating myself, but listen, it is not give me today my daily bread, it is give us today our daily bread. And it starts with our Father. This is about the family. This is about God's household. This is about us praying for the needs of all and asking God to give us our daily bread. That's relevant as we go on. So that's what this asking is about. Secondly, so asking, seeking, knocking represent a lifestyle focused on doing God's will in the earth. Secondly, these verses are part of a larger whole about priorities in the Father's house. Priorities in the Father's household. The emphasis in this section on the relationship between the Heavenly Father and His children ties today's text, 7, 1 through 12, to... The larger section of chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through to 7.12. Throughout that section, you have this repeated reference to your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father. Why? Well, chapter 5 ends bringing up the Heavenly Father. The, The first section ends saying, Now, you... Be like your Father in heaven. Be sons of your Father and and be kind to your enemies. Love your enemies. Be kind to everyone and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That introduces the section then that talks all about how things run in God's household. So this whole section is about God's household. 
to understand what is happening in this larger section, we need to think about households or families differently than Americans think about households and families. We need to think about households or families in the way that people at that time and that place thought about households and families. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what that audience would have understood. To call, call God Father not only infers the intimacy of a father caring for his little children or the fact that we can trust him. It does do that. But in their world, it had economic implications both for God and for his children. To call God Father had economic implications both for God and for his children. These economic implications are the thread that runs all the way from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through 7, verse 12. That's the thread that ties all of this together. In order to understand what these implications are, we have to understand that in their world, a household, a family, as it were, we would call it that today, but it's really a household is the, right, the, the best word. A household was not just parents and their children. See, today we define a household as, you know, immediate parents and their, their, their children, their offspring. It can be one parent or two parents, but it's still going to be parents and their children. If you don't have parents, well, you've got orphans. And, and so you, you've got parents and their children. It can be biological, it can be adopted, but it's parents and their children. That's how we define a household. That is not how they defined a household. And until we get what, how they defined it, we begin to miss what's going on in our text. In their world, many people, in fact, almost everybody, except the poorest of the poor, were part of somebody's household. Everybody was a part of somebody's household, and the poor were usually a part of somebody who was wealthy's household. Why? Because if they weren't, they would starve to death. You see, a household included servants and laborers that worked on that person's land. It was everybody in their entire, you know, their entire land holding, everybody in that that, that, that was under their care. And they were responsible for providing for those that were in their household. So these people may go home at night to a different house, but they were part of the household and were, that were provided for by the head of that household. Every aspect of the socioeconomic ladder was represented in a household. A household had the guy at the top who was the richest, obviously, and it had various people all the way down the economic ladder to the poor servants that were in the field. You had all and everything in between. That would have been considered a household. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul sends greetings from all the saints, and then he says, uh, especially those from Caesar's household. Well, that was the biggest household, needless to say. But to be in Caesar's household didn't mean you were heir to the throne or you're one of his children. In fact, you may not even live in Rome. You might not live in the same house he lives in. Many times it would be a a soldier who lived hundreds of miles away from Rome, but they were cared for uh, by Caesar. It was a pretty smart way to do things because they were obviously then going to be loyal to Caesar. It would be pretty hard to buy them off since Caesar could pay more than anyone else could to get them to fight against Caesar. So his household was big and people were dependent upon that. If God is our father then first of all, He, God, has an obligation to provide for us. That's what we saw in the previous text, last week's text. He will give us food, drink, and clothing. And we even see it here in this text. But the father in an ancient household didn't provide for each member of the household directly. He provided through household managers. They worked out the details. And there's even a parable about that where Jesus says, 
uh, when, when, when the owner of the house returns, he better find that you are distributing food to his servants at the proper time. And if not, you're going to be cast out. You're going to be in big trouble. And it's interesting that he says food. Why? Because it's important that the stewards of the house provide the food for the rest of the household. We are taught to pray, our Father, give us today our daily bread. Why? Because He expects us. He's going to provide, but He expects us to steward that and make sure His servants are fed. And then in chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, generosity is uh, being spoken about there, not as an additional topic that Jesus thought, oh, let's talk about generosity. Lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth. It's, it's a better economic plan anyway. That's not what He's talking about. What He's talking about is that generosity is essential for the father's household to work properly. It's essential that the children of the father act like the father in his generosity. The way the father's household work is that he provides and his children in his image work out the details generously. He provides and his children in his image work out the details generously. Generously. Note that the examples that Jesus gives of you know, the metaphor of earthly fathers to heavenly fathers in verses 9 and 10 are about basic provisions. A child who asks for bread will not be given a stone. A child who asks for fish, that, that's what they ate every day, bread and fish. It was just basic necessities. I mean, we have to go to bonefish, right, to get good fish, but no, no, that's, just, that's what you ate because you're out fishing, you're catching it, you're eating it. That was life. Well, God will provide for his household in response to our prayer, and he will give us the bread and the fish, but he gives it through stewards, through household managers, through people who are given a surplus that they might distribute it to those with need. You're beginning to see how all of this fits together in the broader text of the Sermon on the Mount? This isn't just some random saying that Jesus is throwing in here. Now, you might... Ask a fairly good question. Well, if, if God is providing for his household, why do so many seem to do without? It's a fair question. Yeah, I mean, even last week's text, you know, God will give you your, whatever you need, food, drink, clothing. Well, if, if we're honest, we'd all say, well, it doesn't always appear that that works out. Right? I mean, I've seen believers, well, believers have starved to death. Believers have gone without, oftentimes many times. So how is it, you say, if God truly does provide, then why is it that so many seem to do without? The answer, it's how we treat one another. Since the Father provides for His household, I would suggest He better come back to find the members of the household seeking to see His justice, God's kingdom and His justice, manifest. So that leads to our third point. Life in the Father's house, sibling, relationships verse 12 so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets jewish tradition tells of a gentile who came to one of israel's famous sages in the generations leading up uh, to jesus uh, a sage named hillel and actually, there was Hillel and another sage, and he says to the, this, the other one's his rival sage, I guess they were competing for who is the best sage, I don't know how that all works, but this Gentile says, uh, if either of you can persuade me, or, or tell me, 
what the entire law instructs me to do while standing on one foot, I will convert to Judaism. In other words, since Jewish sages were probably not known for their athletic prowess, if any of you can tell me briefly and clearly what I'm required to do in the law, then I will become a Jewish. Okay, so Hillel, apparently standing on one foot, one would assume, um, declared, Do not do to your fellow what you hate to have done to you. This is the whole law entire. The rest is explanation. Go learn. I think it gets pretty close to what Jesus said, right? It's a negative version of it. Jesus told him the positive, not don't do, but do. But essentially the same thing. Now, of course, if you say it in the positive, that you, we could argue that that includes more, yet there are certain responsibilities you have, whether anyone does anything to you or not, that you do. So, yeah, I'll, I'll grant that there's a little bit more to it. But the fact of the matter is, the only way this ethic works is when it is kept aligned with be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, imagine this, this ethic, do to others as you'd have them do to you, amongst, say, drug dealers. It really doesn't work very well. I mean, for instance, don't report any crimes to the authorities because you wouldn't want yours reported. Okay? That's similar, right? Or how about this? If you like to get drunk, then help others get drunk. Well, do to others as you'd have them do to you. I mean, I'd love for others to give me lots of booze. I mean, if that's what I'm after, right? Well, it doesn't work in that context, does it? It requires a certain context in order for it to really work. In fact, it, it requires the context of love your enemies, refuse retaliation, give generously to the needy. They're all essential for this, this ethic to work out in a beneficial way. Verse 12 serves as the conclusion to both the smaller unit, 1 through 12. So, for instance, do not judge in order that you will not be judged. Verse 1, verse 12, do to others what you would have them do to you. So, here's what not to do, here's what to do. That's a unit. But then the whole body of the Sermon on the Mount. Notice this. That it begins all the way back in chapter 5, verse 17, right after the introduction with the Beatitudes. Verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. But now at the very end of the body of the sermon, it closes. This sums up the law and the prophets. And the next verse starts the conclusion, which we'll look at next week. This sums up the law and prophets. Notice law and prophets and kind of their, their, the whole totality of them are in both verses, beginning and end. And it parallels, so this is the ending of part two of the body. It parallels the ending of part one. Part one ended with, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So how do you live in light of what your father is like? Now it's due to others. In other words, it's about sibling relationships. So the first is living in light of who your father is. The second is living rightly with your brother and sister. And so there's a parallelism. So you see how perfectly this verse fits where it is and brings the whole together. The biggest obstacle to provision in God's house, so we're going back to answer that question, then why does it seem like so many are without? The biggest obstacle to provision in God's house is not God's lack of care. It is sibling lack of care for one another. The biggest obstacle to provision in God's house is not God's lack of care. It is sibling lack of care for one another. I knew if I said it enough times, somebody would give me a good amen. I got two of them. That's great. By the way, uh, one of the things I, I, I'm discovering in, in, in learning Hebrew, and by the, thank God 
My exam was this week. I am done with Hebrew 2. I have learned what I need to learn. Now I just apply it going forward, for at least for school purposes. But one thing I, I noticed is th- there's an interesting word in Hebrew. We, we say it, amen. That's actually how they more or less said it too. A little bit of accent different. And it was used to say, for instance, when the people of Nineveh heard the, the message that Jonah brought, they believed, they amen, they believed in response. So amen is our way of saying, I add my faith, I am in agreement with that. That is triumph with that. I, it's, it's an expression, a confession of our faith in God's word. So it's good to say amen when the word of God is being brought forth. Just, you know, so you know. Um, when the siblings aren't being generous like God, but only judges they perceive God judges, they fail to carry out God's will in his household. Generosity is the main theme throughout this section, not because Jesus wants us to be generous for generosity's sake. Oh, being generous is better than not being generous. No, that's not the point. Generosity is the main theme throughout this section because the Father is generous and that is how he intends his household to function. If we are in his household, we are in a household that runs on generosity. Now listen, at the heart of the golden rule is faith in God. It's not do to others as they have done to you. You know, that, that wouldn't take faith. And neither is it due to others, and they will do likewise to you. That would take some faith, but, you know, hey, i got a pretty solid promise. They're going to do the same to me. It is simply due to others as you would have them do to you, and the implication is there's no guarantee they ever will. It takes faith. For God's household to work, we cannot live our lives contingent upon whether or not somebody else is going to do their part. And we know that in marriage. It doesn't work in marriage to say, okay, you guys need to love each other. Okay, I will as soon as they start. I mean, you're going to spend your whole life just kind of sparring back and forth, kind of bobbing and weaving, trying to see who's going to throw the first punch, right? I mean, we're just waiting on each other. That ain't going to work. It's a boring thing. Rather, we have to say, okay, I'm all in. As I've said to many a couple, look at the wife, look at the husband. You can be the best wife in the world. And he can't do anything about that to stop it. Or you can be the best husband in the world and she can't do anything to stop that. You just can't do it. It isn't dependent upon what they do. Okay? Well, that works in the household of God. We can be as generous as God wants us to be. You say, well, what if they, what if they, what if they? This is about being like your father. So it's not contingent upon what others do. What if nobody provides for me when I need it? Well, again, it takes faith. We have to trust God. Now, you, some of you might be thinking, and if you're astute, you're paying attention, you've been here three weeks in a row, uh, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, three sermons in a row about generosity. You must think we are not a very generous congregation. <laughs> not the case. <laughs> not the case at all. Uh, uh, I, 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 I am had three sermons on generosity because we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount and That's what the text is about, and I'm going to preach what the text is about. But I also realize this isn't your first rodeo. I mean, for most of you, you've been a Christian for a while, and you know you're supposed to be generous, and many of you have already begun to be generous. But I also know that if you're anything like me, that 
if we don't continue to hear the truth, it's a little bit like, you know, we just recently replaced a bunch of plants and we've replaced some over there. We need more to replace at you know, some point in the future. But, you know, 19 years ago, we planted a number of really pretty variegated bushes, these, these plants that had yellow, a lot of yellow and some green leaves. It's beautiful. Uh, 19 years later, you know what? These bushes and anything variegated, it happens to a number of things that are on our property. They turn solid green. They lose the variegation. Why? Because they revert back to what they were in their natural state before people started tinkering with them. Okay? That's just what they do. And that's what we're like. See, we're variegated as Christians. We, we, we have our old sinful self that we're fighting off, and we've got the truth that Christ has given us that, that gives us variegation, that gives us that variety that's beautiful, the, the image of God. But if we're left to ourselves, we, 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 we become less variegated. We get right back to that natural state. So I preach these texts with all the passion that I think they're intended to be preached, not because I think you're an ungenerous people, but because we need to keep hearing these truths over and over again so that we remain variegated, if you will. Generosity grows out of the gospel, which is why any of us are generous. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He isn't talking about money, but the point is, Christ gave up his place of of wealth and, and glory, and he laid down his life for us, and it was through his kind generosity that we are rescued. And so it, it means that we now are to be a people who are like him, laying down our lives for others in all the generosity that we can have. Are you ever tempted to let judgments about how the needy are only reaping what they've sown or how you're not that way because your own hands have made you prosperous? Have you, are you ever tempted to have those kinds of judgments? This text calls us to resist them. How are we doing? How are you doing? How are we doing as, as stewards of God's provisions for God's household? Because that's what we are. We're either faithful stewards or we're unfaithful stewards, but we are stewards. We, we are managers of God's household. We, we have been given something, and God expects us to make sure that it's distributed to where He wants it for the care of His household. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, This, if, if it's true, and it is, that where your treasure is, your heart is, these texts get to the very center of our hearts. They address things that go on in the very center of our hearts. Mine, I know. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a work by your Spirit to transform us into the image of your Son so that we would be the children of our Father in your household doing as you please, will. In Jesus' name. Amen.